That's a pretty strong word. I want to look at that last verse there uh, of Genesis chapter 46, verse, uh, uh, what verse is that? Verse 34. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. An abomination. When was the last time you used the word abomination in a sentence? Anybody? It's a good SAT word. If you're gonna like take the SAT, you need vocabulary words, that's a good word. Abomination. If you go look up what the word abomination means, it means something that causes disgust or hatred. It's a really strong word. And the Egyptians view, well, every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Why did the Egyptians hate shepherds so much? Well, during Pharaoh's time, uh, most shepherds were nomadic. They were constantly on the move, and many of them were foreigners because shepherds simply followed wherever their sheep would take them. The sheep would go, and the sheep were infamous for eating whatever was in front of them, right? So whatever food or, or even sometimes crops. And along the Nile River, they did a very good job of irrigating the Nile River so that they could grow crops along the river. And so oftentimes, shepherds would or sheep, not the shepherds, but the sheep would, would eat the, the crops of Egyptians. And so the Egyptians hated the shepherds because they didn't control their sheep. You know, it's interesting. One of the great mysteries of the Christmas story is that even by the first century, even though shepherds may not have been an abomination in Israel, they weren't the highest people on the social strata of the nation. Uh, the shepherds were not the who's who of Israel in the first century, and yet... The angel of the Lord comes to shepherds watching flock at overnight, as we just saw in the video, to communicate to these shepherds, of all people, the good news that unto them a Savior is born. He is Christ the Lord. Why does God send his angel to a group of smelly, poor, dirty shepherds, of all people? And what could we possibly learn from these shepherds? To find out, I would encourage you to turn in your Red Pew Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, it may be found on page 1090, 1090 of your Red Pew Bible. Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his Holy Spirit to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as we pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you inspired Luke to go and do a lot of interviews, to gather an orderly count of all that Jesus said and did. Lord, as he interviewed, he learned about the miraculous birth of our Savior and the call that you gave to shepherds. So Lord, as we read this familiar text, may you speak afresh and anew to us this morning that we might hear from you. Oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Luke chapter two, beginning with verse one, listen to God's word. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. 
And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And and suddenly there was with the angel a, a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Here ends the reading of God's word. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to look again at verse 8 of our text in Luke 2. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Notice that these shepherds are, well, they're out in the field watching their flock by night. These are the night shift shepherds. Now, normally in any kind of working order, there's a, there's a pecking order, right? And it's the night shift folks that are usually the early, you know, they're the first ones hired. And so they've got to do the night shift first. But eventually you want to work your way to the day shift, right? Because nobody wants to work all night. And these shepherds are, well, they're out in the, the field indicating they were pretty poor shepherds. They didn't have a lot of money. Because a wealthy shepherd, someone who had resources, would build his own sheep pen because it was always much safer to keep your sheep inside of a sheep pen overnight rather than to be out in the field where the predators were. And these shepherds, these poor, dirty, smelly shepherds are out in the field at night watching their sheep. Now, why would God come to these night shift shepherds of all people, send his angel to tell them the good news that unto them a a son is born, unto them a king, the Christ is Lord? Why, Why would they come to these guys of all people? Why not go to, why not go to Caesar Augustus, as you read in Luke 2 verse, uh, verse 1? For Caesar Augustus was the most powerful man in the world at the time. If you know the history of Rome, Caesar Augustus was the one who who helped kill Mark Antony and helped unite the Roman Empire. So there was Pax Romana, Roman peace among the empire. And and he was the most powerful man really in the history of the world at that time. Why not go to Caesar Augustus in his palace in Rome and tell him that there's a new king that's been born? Or at least go to the temple in Jerusalem. Why go to these shepherds out in the field who are poor, smelly, Dirty, probably uneducated. What is it about these shepherds that God would send his angel to these men of all people to tell them the good news of the birth of their Savior? Well, as much as the Egyptians may hate shepherds, if you look at the holes of Scripture, you'll see that God would often communicate to shepherds. 
As you look at Genesis, you see that Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, well, he was a shepherd. God spoke to him in a dream. Think of the story of the Exodus, the story of Moses. Moses was herding his father-in-law's sheep out in the wilderness when, when, when God spoke to him through a burning bush to tell Moses that he was being called to lead the people of Israel out of slavery and bondage and from Egypt. And of course, as Kelly just pointed out so beautifully, the most famous king in the history of all of Israel, well, David was a shepherd boy when God called him and anointed him as the next king of Israel. Yes, God sees something special in shepherds. There's something special about the way shepherds live their lives that God wants to call them among all people. And as you look at our text this morning, the text in Luke 2, we'll see that there are three characteristics that help make these shepherds particularly good instruments of God's grace. Three things that make them good servants of the Lord. And we could seek to emulate these three characteristics ourselves. The three things that make these shepherds such good servants of the Lord is they were, they were humble, they were faithful, and they were worshipful. First of all, they were humble. In Luke 6, verse 20, in Luke's depiction of the Sermon on the Mount, he writes these words. Jesus says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. These shepherds were poor. They didn't have the money to make their own sheep pens. They had to herd their sheep in the middle of the night out in the wilderness. They were poor. They were the night shift shepherds. They weren't high in the hierarchy of society or of culture. They were poor, humble men. And it was their circumstances that really had humbled them. The the poor in, in ancient, in the first century, really did seek and wonder where their next meal would come from. And when they would pray the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, they weren't sure where that next meal would come from. So the poor were by nature very humble. But the rich, well, the rich in their day and even the rich in our day, We have to work to be humble because the reality is is that our society and our culture lifts up the wealthy. And if you think about our country, America, we live in the wealthiest country in the history of the world. And the temptation for all of us is to to take pride in our wealth, to to rely on our wealth as if if our wealth could give us comfort, as if if all of our sense of self was wrapped up in what the stuff we have. And that's what our society wants to tell us, you know, through all the advertisements that if you buy this, then you'll truly be peaceful and you'll have all you need and you'll have contentment. But we know better. Yes, we know that a joy is not going to be found simply in stuff as though much as we love to get stuff during Christmas time. Yes, we have to be careful to resist the temptation to take pride in the things that we have. James, if you remember when we were studying the book of James this summer, James, the brother of Jesus, writes this in James 4, verse 6. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The temptation for the rich in Jesus' day and the temptation for the wealthy in our day is to take pride in the things that we have. But one way to resist that sense of pride is to give. One of the ways to resist the temptation towards greed is to give, to not allow the things of this world to control us or to guide us, but rather to to give back to God out of gratitude for all that he has done for us. Because I want to be real clear here, the Bible doesn't say there's anything wrong with having a lot of stuff. There's a lot of wealthy people in the Bible, and we celebrate that because these wealthy people like King David and his son King Solomon used his resources to help build the temple in Jerusalem. And one of the things that I'm most proud about our church recently is that as we 
wind down the Grow campaign and we've, we've pulled our resources together over the last three years. We've seen how God has been able to take what we've given and use it to help build a new youth house for our youth, be able to build a new indoor preschool play- playground for our, our preschool t- uh, children at our church, a new outdoor pr- playground for the preschoolers as well as the elementary age kids of our youth, to make our campus more handicap accessible with the ramp, but not just to build our campus, but really to help build the body of Christ and reach out to the community. For we used the money from the Grow Campaign. You remember we tied on that an extra 10%, and we purchased a building in San Jacinto on 6th Street that might be utilized to help minister to that community there through various ministries like One Square Mile and Sparrow Legacy Ministries and uh, Wildlife, which is the middle school version of Young Life. And we've been able to use that building to help minister to that community. But not just here in Amarillo, we've used the resources that God has given to us and we've given back to the work of God's kingdom to help build a church in Bolivia and help build a, a training center in Africa. Yes, God has been able to take what we give and he's been able to multiply its impact to minister to so many, many, many more. Yes, if we want to be humble and battle the temptation of pride that can come with wealth, the temptation of greed that can come with great wealth, we need to give. For Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. As we get back to the work of God's kingdom, God takes what we give and our heart follows and he's able to take it. Just like that little boy with the, who gave his lunch in John 6, his five barley loaves and two fish. Jesus took that lunch, that small poor boy's lunch, and he was able to multiply its impact to feed 5,000 plus people that day. Yes, as we give in gratitude for what God has already given to us, our heart follows, and we grow in our faith. And these shepherds, well, they were humble, humble servants of the Lord. And Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the meek, the meek, the humble, for they will inherit the earth. You know, it's interesting, Andrew Murray, who was a great uh, missionary to South Africa for many years, has written a great book called Humility, The Journey Toward Holiness, and in his book, he gives this explanation of humility, chapter, or page 17. Humility is the only soil in which virtue takes root. A lack of humility is the explanation of every defect and failure. A lack of humility is the explanation of every defect and failure. If you think about it, at the very beginning of creation in Genesis chapter three, we have the story of Adam and Eve, which I've been in a Bible study on Tuesday mornings with a group of guys, and we were actually studying that story. We're going through a book by Greg Ogden called Discipleship Essentials, and we look at different doctrines, and we got to the chapter nine, the doctrine of sin. We're, we're all against that, by the way. We're against sin, if you wanna know what we think on that. My position on sin is it's bad, don't do it. But uh, anyway, as we were reading the doctrine of sin, we are going to the, the original sin of Adam and Eve, and we talked about the fact that as we look at the text, we can see that really it was the pride of Adam and Eve, wanting to be like God, knowing both good and evil that led to the disruption of their relationship with God when they broke the one commandment they had been given. They'd been told not to, that they could eat of any tree in the garden, but not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But they were unable to resist the temptation to be like God, to know both good and evil. And so in their pride, they thought, I don't need to listen to God. I can do my own thing. And so they decided to eat from that tree. And and the relationship with God was disrupted. The relationship with each other was disrupted. Even their relationship with creation was disrupted and broken. And we now live into that reality today. 
Well, as we were going through that Greg Ogden uh, book, there was a quote that he has from John Stott's book, The Case for, or um, uh, The Cross of Christ. The Cross of Christ. It's one of Murray's favorite books. He'll probably quote it on Sunday. I have no idea. But The Cross of Christ, John Stott. And it was very interesting. The very next morning, I'm reading Tim Keller's book on Proverbs. It's like a little devotional book. And as I'm reading the book, he makes the same reference to the same quote from John Stott on sin. So when I hear and I read in two days the same quote twice, I'm thinking, I should share that with you guys. So here it is. John Stott writes this. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, thinking I well, I'm my own God. I can do what I want. I'm not accountable to anyone. The essence of sin is in our pride, thinking we can act like we are God, as if we're accountable to no one, self-reliant. It's all about us. That's the essence of sin. Man substituting himself for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Our salvation comes not through pride, but through humility. When Jesus, fully God and fully man, humbles himself and is born as a baby in a lowly manger, a feeding trough in the most humble of circumstances. And he gropes among us and he begins to teach us and he begins to heal us and ultimately he dies as the, on a cross as the perfect sacrifice for our sins, the ultimate demonstration of, of God's love and God's humility. Paul captures this beautifully in Philippians uh, chapter two, verses four to eight, when he writes this, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptying himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The cross is one of the most humble acts that we've ever seen. For God, who was without sin, he who was without sin became sin for us when he died on a cross as the perfect sacrifice for our sins so that our sins could be atoned for once and for all so that we could be reconciled to God, made in a right relationship with God. And Jesus did, did the unbelievable. He, he, he conquered both sin and death with his resurrection on the third day so that we might know that we could have the assurance of eternal life in him if we simply come to him in faith and, and walk in the new life that he's come to bring in all of us. As we meditate on the cross of Christ, we can't help but be humbled, recognizing that none of us deserve such a great sacrifice. None of us deserve that kind of love today, for we are all sinners in need of God's grace. It was interesting, uh, later in the week after reading that quote by John Stott twice in two days, I was then going through Ephesians for my own quiet time and I was reading Ephesians chapter six, which is the, the description that Paul gives of putting on the full armor of God. And I was reading about the armor of God. One element of the armor kept standing out to me, jumping out to me as I thought about it. It's the helmet of salvation. Paul tells us to put on the helmet of salvation, ultimately to protect our minds that if we will think about that our salvation comes through the humility of Christ, we can't help but be humble. As we think about where our salvation is found at the cross of Christ where he humbled himself and, and substituted himself on a cross as that sacrifice for us, it can't help but make us humble. I think that's one of the reasons Paul was so humble, even though he was an apostle who wrote much of the New Testament. He says to the church in Corinth, I, while I was with you, I claim to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
Yes, these shepherds in our text this morning are visited by the angel, I believe in part, because they were humble. They had a humble disposition and they proved to be faithful. They were faithful. Notice that they are faithfully watching over their sheep at night at great risk to their own lives, staying up at wee hours of the evening to make sure that they, their sheep are safe. But also notice that they are faithful to share the message which they have received. After they hear about what the angel tells them, they go to check it out for themselves. And when they get to the, well, to the manger where, where Mary and Joseph are with baby Jesus, they, they faithfully share the message that the angels have told them. With great excitement and with great joy, they, they tell them this good news that the angels have visited them. And this is what they said. And, and Mary and Joseph, imagine how startled they were to, to meet these shepherds from outside of Bethlehem to tell them that an angel told them that this is their son. And, and of course, Mary knew that it was miraculous that Jesus was born, for she was a virgin. Joseph knew the story because he had had a vision and a dream that his uh, betrothed was going to be with child from the Holy Spirit. But they thought that was their own private secret. But now they can tell that this is good news for everyone, for, for the angels telling the shepherds. And these shepherds are faithful, faithful to share what they know. Are we faithful to share what we know about God's love today? Do we share this information with all humility and respect and love? You know, Peter, who was the rock in which Christ built his church, uh, says this about how we should be prepared to give an account for the hope that we have. He says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Are we willing and ready and able to, to share the good news that God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Are we ready to give an account for the hope that we have today? It was interesting, um, Thursday during my lunch hour, I slipped away to the AT&T store to, uh, to get my wife a Christmas gift. Uh, I won't tell her what it is, because she's right here. But uh, as I was getting this gift, the guy was explaining to me that if I upgraded our, our data plan, for just $20, she would have unlimited data. And I said, that's an amazing price. How long will this price last? And he said, forever. And I said, until Jesus comes back? And he said, yes, and I hope he comes back soon. And I said, so do I. Come, Lord Jesus, come. I was saying it kind of loud. People in the store looking at me like, what is this going on? <laughs> and then I asked him, I said, well, where do you go to church? And he said, well, I'm actually a Jehovah's Witness. And I haven't been able to go to church for some time because we haven't been meeting in person. And I'm thinking to myself, well, hey, I should invite this guy. And so I pulled out my little uh, card. And we have these uh, in the Narthex back table there. You can pick these up, these little invite cards that tell you about our worship times. I said, well, while your church is not meeting in person, you're welcome to come to ours. And I invited him to come to our church and said, hey, love to have you. In fact, this Christmas Eve, we're going to have a 4 o'clock, an 8 o'clock, and 11 o'clock. We'd love to have you come and, and hear about the good news of God's love. And then he said to me, he said, kind of jokingly, he said, so if I go to your church, will I get to go to heaven faster? I said, well, that's not exactly the way it works. You see, we get to go to heaven because of what Jesus has done for us. He died on a cross for our sins. And then he rose again, and we can receive this gift simply through faith. And if you come to my church, it doesn't mean you're going to get to go to heaven faster, but I can tell you, you're going to learn what it means to follow Jesus today. And I invited him to come. And as we talked about different things at the end of it all, I said, hey, Merry Christmas, and hey, Come join us this Christmas Eve. Now, I have no idea if he's going to come here, 
but I want to be ready to give an account, to invite others to join us in the celebration. Because not everybody really understands what Christmas is all about. If you know much about Jehovah's Witnesses and their, their theology, they really don't fully understand what it's all about. We want to let them know that it's not about what you do, it's about what he's done. And in gratitude for his grace, we want to share that good news with others. Yes, these shepherds, they were humble, they were faithful, faithful to share what they know. And as you look at the end of our text, we can see that they were, well, they were worshipful. Look again at that last verse that I read. It says, and the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. As they realized that, well, the promises of God that we find in Isaiah and and Malachi, that they're being fulfilled with this birth of this baby boy, they became exuberant. They began to worship God, even in the middle of the night, giving all glory and praises to God. Now, in preparation for this message, I was encouraged by someone to uh, start watching The Chosen. Has anybody ever seen the show The Chosen? If you haven't, you can find it on YouTube, or you can get a little app where they show you the different shows. And as I've watched, I haven't watched much of it, but the two episodes I've seen have been pretty faithful to try to communicate the message of the gospel, the story of Jesus' life. And I actually watched the episode where the angels come to the shepherds. And in this powerful story, uh, one of the shepherds goes away, and he's just overwhelmed by what he's seen. And he says, I must go. People must know. I must go. People must know. Can you say that with me? I must go. People must know. He was so convicted by what he had seen. And what's interesting about the chosen is they highlight that these shepherds who are herding sheep outside of Bethlehem, well, they were actually raising sheep that could be used as a form of sacrifice on Passover. Now, as I watched this, I had to kind of check that out. Like, is that historically accurate? Is there any credence to this idea that they would be the ones who are raising sheep for sacrifice in Jerusalem? Well, it turns out they probably were. You see, as I was reading different uh, commentators, uh, one pointed out that there's an ancient Jewish document that talks about the fact that in a given year, there were about 1.2 million sheep or goats that would be killed in Jerusalem as a part of their worship, as a part of their sacrifice, whether it be on the Day of Atonement or, or more importantly, on Passover. And you remember the, the meal of Passover, we read about it in Exodus chapter 12, that while the people of Israel are still living in slavery in Egypt, God invites every household to sacrifice a, a sheep without blemish and to put the blood of that lamb on the doorposts of their home. So as the angel of death flies over Egypt and kills the firstborn, he would pass over the homes that had the blood of the lamb. And the chosen points out that as these sheep, shepherds who are herding and raising sheep for Passover, they've come and, well, they found the, the lamb that is without blemish, the sinless one, the savior of the world. For in John chapter one, verse 29, When John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yes, Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. And these shepherds outside of Bethlehem, historians and commentators tell us that most likely they probably were raising sheep for sacrifice because Bethlehem is only six miles away from Jerusalem. And where could Jerusalem get 1.2 million sheep to offer a sacrifice? They had to go to places like Bethlehem. And so here are these shepherds, they've been spending all night herding sheep, hoping as an act of worship that one day these sheep, some of these sheep might be utilized as a a sacrifice, as an offering to God. And now they have been invited by by God himself through the angel to come and see this one who is without sin, the perfect sacrifice, the lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. 
And overwhelmed by this reality, this shepherd in the, in the show and, and the shepherds of, of the day began to worship God. And he says, I can't believe this. I must go. People must know. Who are you going to invite to join us in the worshipful celebration this Christmas Eve? Who will you invite to say, come and, and see this one who, who's come to take away the sins of the world, the one that we celebrate, that, that is Emmanuel, God with us. Who will you invite to join us in the worshipful celebration this Christmas Eve? Now, if there's not a, ma- a name that comes to mind for you right now, let's do what the shepherds were known for doing. You see, one of the reasons I believe that God would often speak to shepherds like Jacob or Moses or David or these shepherds who are herding the sheep outside of Bethlehem is because shepherds spent a whole lot of time outside in the midst of God's creation herding sheep. And as they were alone with the sheep, what would they do? They would pray. They would talk to God. And they would listen to God. In solitude and silence, they would hear God's voice. If you're not sure who it is that God's calling you to invite this Christmas Eve to to join us in the celebration, we've got these great little invite cards you can pick up at the welcome desk. If you're not sure who to mail this to or to give this to or to invite, pray. In solitude and silence, pray as shepherds would. Pray that the Lord would lay a name on your heart that you might invite to join us this Christmas Eve as we celebrate the Lamb of God who's come come to take away the sins of the world. May we like the shepherds in all humility, faithfulness, and worshipfulness invite others to join us this Christmas Eve for the celebration. Please join me as we pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that you are the God who is with us in Jesus Christ. You are the God who loves us so much that you don't abandon us in our sin, but you actually become one of us. And you sent your son here to this earth to save us all. We have good news that is for all people So Lord, like these shepherds, help us to be faithful to share that message with others. Help us to invite others to join us in the worshipful celebration of your great love, of your presence with us, that you are Emmanuel, God with us. And Lord, may your Holy Spirit guide each one of us and open doors that we might be bold in our invitation, inviting those you're calling to come to join us this Christmas Eve. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son, who is the Christ, and all God's people said, amen.